0: Now, as we turn our attention to the book of Romans this morning, we are going to cover a rather significant amount of text in a relatively short period of time. So, I'm going to ask you to harness your attention and focus in, if you would, on Romans chapter 11. So, if you have your Bibles, please open them, and if you don't have a Bible with you, you can open up whatever Bible app you're using, and while you're at it, you can silence your phone and... If you don't have that with you, you can grab a pew Bible in front of you and turn to Romans chapter 11. If you're not normally with us, uh, we have been working our way through the book of Romans and we are now in this monumental chapter where Paul explains to us the uh, true relationship between Jew and Gentile within the ultimate arc of redemptive history. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first part there, which is Romans 11, 1 to 10, and I've entitled this two-part series, Grace Alone. Grace Alone was one of the um, main tenets of the Reformation. The idea that it was was grace alone and, and no works that we had done, that there was nothing that we brought to the table, nothing that we contribute. I mean, if you were to broaden it out a little bit and see all of those solas of the Reformation, the alones of the Reformation. It was Scripture alone that was the first one. Everything hinged on Scripture. In fact, in our seminar this morning, we were talking about Martin Luther and how he was called back from basically being in a protected castle during the time when people were hunting for him and Wortburg and he came back to Wittenberg because there were some radicals there who had, had stirred up the people into a more radicalized version of the Reformation. And when he comes back into town to try to calm things down and end the chaos, he preaches eight sermons, one after the other, for eight consecutive days in the chapels there in Wittenberg. And he calls for peace and he says to everybody: Be patient. It took me three years as a scholar to understand these things. Don't expect the people in three months to be able to understand and embrace it. He said everything happened because of the power of the Word of God. It wasn't what he did, it wasn't his effort. He said anyone can start a rebellion, but the only way to really change hearts is to preach the Word. He said all he did was drink beer with Melanchthon and God did all the work through the Word. Listen, when we talk about the real change that needs to happen, it happens through understanding of the Word. And so, Scripture alone was one of the tenets, but not only Scripture alone, but also faith alone, a faith that was granted to you by God, the faith that we're going to talk about in a little while here in this particular passage. And then, of course, that faith alone was only in Christ alone. And not only Christ alone, but that Belief in Christ alone came by grace alone. And all of that to the glory of God alone. Scripture alone, faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And today, as we go back and study this idea of grace, it is grace, first of all, that we see here in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 11. And our first point was the extent of grace. Look down with me in your Bible to verse one and two. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. That's the strongest way that Paul can say no. Absolutely not. He says, I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite, descendant of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. No one's more Jewish than me, and God has not rejected his people, but not just as a nation. He's not trying to say, well, don't worry. God is going to... uh, go ahead and make sure that all the Zionists have their way and Israel is going to become a world superpower. He says, no, the real Jew, the true Israel, is the one that's been foreknown. He says in verse 2, God has not rejected his people, notice it, whom he foreknew. Those are the ones that have not been rejected. Those are the ones who have been chosen. They are the elect." They are the one chosen before the foundation of the world. They are the ones to whom he is ultimately faithful, and it's the extent of that grace that is poured out. Grace is only grace because it's given to those who don't deserve it. It is given to those who have done nothing to earn it. And therefore, when we look at election, election is the result of grace because it is based not on anything that we have done but on his grace alone. That's the extent of it. Secondly, we saw the application of it carrying on there in verse 2. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah that he appealed to God against Israel? He says, look, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars. I alone am left and they seek my life. He's complaining to God. Elijah is saying, there's no one left. It's just me. I'm the only faithful one. And God says, Elijah, Elijah, I have set apart 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He says, I have applied this grace to those whom I have chosen. I have applied it specifically to those who will never cave in. So too, verse 5, at the present time, there's a remnant. And just like there were 7,000 people during Elisha's day, God is saying that there's a remnant now. Do you understand that? Isn't that amazing truth? There's a remnant right now. Uh, there are a, a group of people carved out in God's eternal purposes and plan to be redeemed, and we don't know who they are yet. Uh, they are what I would refer to as the elect unsaved, meaning they're not saved yet. But they've been chosen by God for salvation, and the day will come when they repent and believe. And even when things seem really difficult and there doesn't seem to be anybody around who can agree with us and believe the gospel and represent Christ, he would say to us what he says to Elijah, don't think that you are so faithful that you're alone, because I always have those whom I've chosen. But, verse 6, logically following, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Don't worry, it's not because of anything that they have done, it's because I've chosen them. And therefore, it can be anybody, because God can choose anyone. So we've seen the extent of grace, the application of grace, and then we had to deal with the chilling reality, which is the opposite of grace. Look at verses 7 and following. What then? He says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. That's the answer. It's not the continuation of the question, He isn't saying, is it true that Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? He is saying, it is true that Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was Israel seeking? Israel was seeking the Messiah, but it was their version of the Messiah, and they missed it. Here he was, in the flesh. They rejected him, and they killed him. And yet, the elect did obtain it, but the rest were hardened. Meaning it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or not. What matters is that you understand and believe the gospel. There was no ethnic or racial limitations. It was only those who actually put their faith in Christ that received what the Jews were originally seeking. And it didn't matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile. One of the most um, interesting accounts in the life of Jesus was when he began his preaching ministry. Jesus uh, was a preacher. He was a teacher. He was a man of God who uh, stood before the people on the Sabbath and he taught them from the Holy Scriptures. And in Luke chapter 4, at one of his first sermons, he goes to the scroll containing the prophet Isaiah and he reads from it and says, This passage about the Messiah has been fulfilled today in your hearing. Essentially saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy. And the people were thrilled, they were excited. They said, this is wonderful news, the Messiah's arrived. It's a surprise to us, given the fact that this is Joseph's son, but you know what? He says he is here, we'll see if he fulfills all of the things that Messiah says he would fulfill. But then Jesus reminds them of something, and this is what's so fascinating. He says, remember, there were all sorts of widows in Israel, but God chose to send his prophet to a Gentile widow. And remember, there were all sorts of lepers in Israel, but God chose to send his prophet to a Gentile leper. And all of a sudden, when the people realized that Jesus was saying That the Messiah was going to come, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. All of the celebrations surrounding the fact that he had arrived turned to hatred, and they tried to kill him. Now, that's an amazing shift in perspective, isn't it? It's amazing that these Jews who were so excited a moment earlier that Messiah had come would turn from celebrating him to wanting to assassinate him for no reason other than the fact that he went to the Bible itself to prove that Messiah was going to come not just for Jews but for Gentiles. What does that show? What that shows is the jealousy of Israel. It shows the jealousy of the Jews. And so the beginning of that Idea formulates here as we look at this opposite of grace. When God withholds grace, when he allows people to continue on in the pathway that they have chosen in terms of their own destruction and verse 7 says, Israel failed to obtain what they were seeking, the elect obtained it instead, but the rest were hardened, allowed to remain in their unbelief. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The very curses that David gives to his enemies in this imprecatory psalm in Psalm 69 Paul lifts up out of the Old covenant Psalter and turns it against his own people, and he says, this is what God has ordained for you. You have grown hard in your heart. You have grown blind. You have grown deaf, and you have missed the very Messiah who presents himself in Christ. What's the reason for that? Extent of grace, the application of grace, the opposite of grace is to leave people in their disbelief. Now let's see the illustration. There are two. It's going to be in verses eleven through twenty-four, and that'll be our text for this morning. Verses eleven through twenty-four. Look down, and there are two illustrations, and we're just going to give a very simple outline today. This is sort of part two of Grace Alone. Very simple outline. Number one, jealous Jews. Number two grateful Gentiles, jealous Jews and grateful Gentiles. This is how the whole point of grace is illustrated. Let's look at the jealous Jews first, and all I'm going to do this morning, I'm just going to walk through the text, and I'm going to explain it as we go along. It's a very straightforward passage. It's not that complicated. It's not that hard to understand. I'm just going to allow it to unfold before our eyes. First of all, jealous Jews. Look at Verse 11, Paul continues, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? That's the question. Did the Jews stumble in order that they might fall? Was God's design that they would be destroyed? Uh, Did God essentially stick out his foot to trip them that they might fall and never get up again? Or was it his design to write them off, to throw them away, to say, I'm no longer going to tolerate you. I'm finished with you, it's over, it's done. I am so sick of your complaining. And they could complain, couldn't they? I love the story of Moses when he's trying to deal with the people and he goes before God and says, look, God, I don't know, kill them or kill me, but this has got to stop. Oh, the whining and the complaining and the grumbling. Now I can't relate to that because none of you complain, none of you grumble, none of you whine, none of you ever have a problem with anything here, it's amazing. Now I can confess the lie I just told, no. But the Jews, were, the Jews who had prodigious abilities, I mean, they were absolutely gifted in this way. They, they, they were prodigies when it comes to complaining. I mean, they had just been rescued from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And in a matter of hours, they're complaining about their own liberation. And so did God finally give up on all of this and say, it's bad enough that you complain, it's bad enough you kill the prophets, it's bad enough you kill my own son, I'm going to cause you then to stumble and you're never going to recover. Paul says, no, that's not the purpose of the stumbling. Verse 11, by no means, rather... And that word rather, please underline it if you're a Bible underliner or highlight it or make a note beside it. Because rather to us is is sort of a um, generic way of making a contrast. Oh, I'd I'd, I'd rather have vanilla than chocolate. This is way more significant than that. This is not, eh, rather this, rather that. This is the strongest contrast possible in the Greek language. I mean, the wording that Paul uses is to say no in the absolute opposite extreme on the other side of the spectrum. Why were they allowed to stumble? Why did they miss the Messiah? Why why, why were they blind to what would happen when he arrived these 2,000 years ago? It's for this reason, rather through their trespass. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Amen. Are you a Gentile this morning? You should be thankful for this verse. The reason why the Jews killed Jesus, the reason why God ordained, as we know from Acts chapter 2, before the foundation of the world that the sinless Son of God would would be put to death at the hands of wicked men is because he knew that part of his providential plan in the whole arc of redemptive history was to redeem not only Jews but also Gentiles, one people of God, all of those who were foreknown by him. And so the way to open up the covenant was to allow for those who were not born into it to be added to it. The way for him to open up the opportunity for us to become part of the covenant people of God as Gentiles was for him to ordain that the original recipients of it would stumble so that he could then reveal that it wasn't about an ethnic group anyway from the beginning. It was about those whom he had chosen. This is an awesome truth. The real purpose for the stumbling was so that, or in order that, it's the purpose clause here, so that the Gentiles might be saved, so as to, resulting here in a situation that will make Israel jealous. Literally provoke them to jealousy. Let's just stop and think about that for a moment. God ordained a situation that he knew would provoke Israel to jealousy. The word um, I described a couple of weeks ago is to provoke from close by. It means um, that you know a person really well and you know how to get them to become jealous. You know them so well that that you know it provokes them. Now, Now just for a moment, think about this in the context of a family. You, you know your family well enough to know what provokes the other people in your family. Would you agree with that? Husbands, wives, you know how to provoke each other. You know what's gonna set each other off. It doesn't take long. And yesterday we had the joy of celebrating a wedding here. Rob and Melissa Denton now. Been married for not even 24 hours and already have probably learned how to provoke one another. It's amazing. I mean, we just, we just learn that. It's natural. It's a gift. Some of you have the gift of provocation. Seriously, like it's amazing. You can provoke all kinds of people, even people you don't know very well. We're just natural provokers. Others on the other extreme, they're just easily provoked. Ever met someone of those, one of those people? Like, wow, you've got the gift of being offended. Like, really, it's amazing. Like, you just, you can get offended anywhere, no matter what. Well, here Paul is saying, God himself, using his infinite power and wisdom, Ha! infinite power and wisdom applied to the effort of making someone jealous. How jealous could you make somebody if you had infinite power? He applies it here to his own people. And I'm going to provoke them to jealousy, he says. We see this again in Romans chapter 10, verse 19. We see it here in 11, 11. We're going to see it also in 11, verse 14. This idea of being provoked to jealousy. Now, verse 12, he continues. Now, now that we've established the reason God ordained the stumbling and that it was good for the Gentiles, he says this, if their trespass meant riches for the world and if their failure means riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? See the hope there? How much more will their full inclusion mean? Now we have to pause for a moment, make sure we understand what's being said here, okay? Let's, let's, let's break it down. We have to decide who is in view here when it says to full inclusion, and, and we also need to understand what would be done in order to provoke that full inclusion. So who is being included and how is that going to happen? Well, the how is pretty easy. The how is the jealousy. This group is going to be jealous because of something going on with the Gentiles. And who is going to come and join in again as a result? It is the Jews. But it is the elect Jews. It is the foreknown Jews. It is the Jews whom God has set his electing love upon to call back. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine if uh, it's Thanksgiving dinner. And you have set the table, and you invite the family to come and join you. And there are a few family members who, for whatever reason, have decided they don't want to be with the rest of the family at Thanksgiving. They come from wherever they are in the home, and everyone is gathered in the kitchen, and they're all going to sit down. And these particular members of the family have decided, I don't want to sit with you guys. I don't want to eat with you guys. I'm going to go over here at this other table, and I don't mean the other table, like the exile table where the children go, remember that? That's like when I knew that I had become a man because I was allowed to sit with the adults. I don't mean that table, I mean like a voluntary exile table over there, they don't want to eat what you're eating, they don't want to fellowship with you, they don't want any part in the family. How would that make you feel? I mean, family gatherings can be awkward enough, but that would cause quite an obvious tension, wouldn't it? If you're the parents and you see your children not wanting to be with you, would it hurt you? Of course it would. Imagine now this as what's happening with Israel. The Lord has opened up the door for all of those whom he has chosen to receive Messiah, uh, to be born again, to have their sins forgiven, to be reconciled before God, and yet there's a portion of them that are off on the side rejecting it completely, He says, imagine if it's so wonderful just around the table with those who believe, how much better will it be when those who have decided not to be with us change their mind and come and join? Wouldn't that be amazing? And in the meantime, you know what he's doing to bring them over? He's provoking them to jealousy. He's putting out the finest food at the table, the finest wine, all their favorite desserts. It's all right there. It's piled up high. And they're over there at the other table, you know, like eating corn chowder. And one by one they look over and they say, you know what, I'd really rather be with everybody else. The provoking to jealousy draws them in. And so he says, what a wonderful celebration it's gonna be when everybody comes together around the table. And that's not an ethnic thing, it's not a racial thing, it's about those who have been born again, chosen of God, and the irresistible grace that draws them in. And so he says here, how much better will it be when not only the Gentiles are enriched, when not only the world is enriched, but there is a full inclusion even of the Jews whose hard hearts have been softened and they receive their Messiah as Lord. Wow, what an awesome, awesome picture. Now, verse 13, he says, I am speaking to you Gentiles in as much as... Uh, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. This is a letter from Paul to Roman Gentiles. He could say the same thing to you and I if he was standing up here preaching it. I'm writing it to you. This is for you Gentiles. You all get to listen in. You all get to hear what he's saying. I'm writing to you. And listen to his goal. He says, I want to magnify my ministry. I want my Gentile evangelistic ministry to flourish. Why? Because I want millions of Gentiles to come to faith in Christ. Partly. But also because the more of you that get saved, the more jealous my own people are going to be. How would you like it if you found out that your evangelist preacher was doing what he did in order to make his own people jealous? And it was even more important to him than seeing you born again. As Paul's admission. He goes, you know what? Look, I'm trying to magnify my ministry. I'm trying to make my ministry successful. I'm trying to make my ministry influential. I'm trying to see thousands, millions of people come to faith in Christ. I want that to happen. Verse 14, in order that purpose clause, somehow through this, the Jews would be jealous and then they would be saved too. They would come to the table and join us. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Do you see how he's building on this? He goes, look, if, if their rejection, if, if them not wanting to be with us means that it opens up the opportunity for the world to be saved, how much greater will it be when they join us and all of God's people from every tribe and tongue and people and nations celebrate around the throne and the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's an awesome thought, isn't it? That's why we do what we do. So that's the jealous Jews. Now, let's look at the grateful Gentiles. That's our second point this morning. The grateful Gentiles. He begins by this sort of transition statement in verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, meaning set apart and perfect, uh, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. This is kind of a general statement. He says, look, if the, if the dough that is set apart and is holy, it's that Sabbath dough, it's, it's the dough that's given almost as a tithe. If some from that, the, the tenth that is taken off of it, the portion that is given as a first fruit, as a tithe, if that is holy, if that lump is holy, then what's given is holy. And if the root is holy, then the branches are holy. So what's he saying? He is saying that the source is holy. The source is Christ. The source is God himself. Whatever comes from him is holy. And he's going to come back to this branch illustration in a moment. So hold that into your mind. The source is holy. The vine is holy. The root is holy. But, verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off, And you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Let's just pause there for a moment. What an amazing picture. Just consider this for a moment. He says, if some of the branches were broken off, what branches? Well, if the metaphor stands up, what we're talking about are the Jewish people. If some of those Jewish people were broken off. These were branches that weren't bearing fruit. They were branches that didn't believe. These were not branches of believers that have lost their salvation. No, these are branches that were broken off. Essentially to make room. There were ethnic Jews who were not chosen. He says, and you, although a wild olive shoot. You'll see that here and down in verse 24, the wild olive shoot. Actually, you could say it a branch from Esau or a branch from one of the other nations. It was taken and grafted in. It was grafted into the nourishing vine of that olive tree. Now just think for a moment, this is a picture we can understand. If you were to go down to a home and garden store, you could buy something called rootstock. People in the Central Valley who grow trees and harvest fruit do this all the time. You buy a a rootstock. It's usually a very hardy root. It's a root that holds up well in adverse conditions. And that rootstock has no other purpose except to be what you graft your other vines or your other branches into. That stock exists as a way to provide nourishment to whatever you're trying to grow. So you can have the same kind of healthy root stock in the entire field, and you can graft into it peaches, or apples, or oranges, or pears, or whatever you're trying to grow. And those fruit-bearing branches will do better grafted into that root stock than they would if they were just planted on their own because they're susceptible to disease or drought or whatever. Do you see the imagery here is exactly what Paul is talking about, only it's in an eternal perspective, a salvation perspective, a gospel perspective. He says his plan, the root, is perfect and holy. And if he breaks off some of the branches and he puts in some wild branches, the wild branches become his holy branches. They are no longer connected to the rootstock of Satan. They are now connected to the rootstock of Christ. Isn't that an awesome thought? I don't mean to be condescending to you this morning, but you are simply a branch that was cut off from the rootstock of Satan and implanted into the very root of Christ, if you're a believer this morning. You don't belong. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You are cut off from a branch. You are cut off from a vine that would have killed you, cut off from rootstock that would have sent you to hell. And in God's infinite and kind mercy, he cuts you off of that rootstock and he grafts you in himself to a very rootstock of glory that will result in your redemption. He says as much here as he continues to describe it. Notice he says, you are then grafted in among the others, among the Jews who were given this knowledge from the outset as God's original chosen people but you are sharing in that very olive tree with them. And therefore, verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. There's the application. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but in strong contrast, absolute opposite end of the spectrum, but the root that supports you. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Don't say, oh, of course God chose Me, because I was a very precious, fruitful branch. In fact, God looked at me as a branch and said, You are such a great branch, I would love to have you as part of my tree. I mean, I can't believe it. Your fruitfulness is so admirable, it is so beautiful, it is so beyond anything that I've seen before that I just got to make you mine. You are so precious. I just would give anything to have you. It sounds like kind of the modern so-called worship songs today, right? You're just so special and wonderful and beautiful and gorgeous, and God would just give everything for you. I'd climb any mountain. I'd jump over any wall because I've got a reckless love for you. That's an idiotic song. Never sing that. There's nothing reckless about God's love. Amen? Don't get me started on that. <laughs> be arrogant. But this is different. though. It's not just, don't, just don't be arrogant about, about it because of us. Don't be arrogant personally about it. But I'm going to tell you something now that you might find a bit shocking, so just buckle up. He's also saying don't be arrogant towards Jews. Don't be arrogant towards Jews. Don't, 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 don't act like, well, they were too stupid to see the Messiah had come. Did they kill the Messiah? Yes, they did, but they did it in accordance with the providential plan of God unfolding as it had been set in motion before the foundation of the world. And therefore, just like grace is not based on works, also when we look at what the Jews did, we can't say it's because they were Less wise, loving, gracious, intelligent. simply something because God ordained it. So we can't be arrogant. We can't look at them, look down our noses at them. Because were it not for grace, we would have done exactly the same thing. Do you believe that? Exactly the same thing. And if I can extend it just a little bit further, don't be arrogant towards any unbeliever. Don't be arrogant towards any unbeliever because, again, were it not for grace, you and I would be in exactly the same place. We don't believe what we believe because we're smarter or <laughs> more godly. Most of us who know ourselves at all, who have any spiritual self awareness, know that left to ourselves, we would not have believed the gospel. We believe in grace because we know ourselves well enough to know that we needed grace. Some of you this time of year do something around Advent called the Jesse tree. How many of you have heard of that? Put up your hand. Okay, a few of you. It comes from Isaiah chapter 11, and basically what it is is you make ornaments throughout Advent, and you put them on your tree, and what it does is it, it shows you the family tree of Christ. It gives you a perspective from all of Scripture about where Messiah comes from. In fact, it's kind of like biblical theology hanging on your Christmas tree. And it begins in Isaiah chapter 11. And since I'm talking about the root, let me just give this to you very briefly, and then I hope you can file it away and make the connection. But he says this in Isaiah chapter 11. You can just listen as I read the first few verses here, down through verse 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf with the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child will lead them the cow will and uh, i'm sorry the cow and the bear will graze and their young shall lie down together The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play over the whole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. It shall not hurt or destroy all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Looking forward to the day when all of the elect, all of the chosen of God, all of those who come from this perfect root will bear fruit as branches for his glory. The very root of Jesse, the Messiah. Well, verse 19 continues on the argument. He says, then you will say branches were broken off so that, or in order that, I might be grafted in. He says, that might be how you'll understand it, you Gentiles. Maybe you'll say, well, they were broken off so I could be grafted in. God chose me over them. Verse 20 says, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. They are the ones who did not believe. They rejected Messiah. But you stand fast through faith. Here we are again looking at this. It is the faith that was given to you as a gift. It was the faith that was given to you by God in the first place. It is not because we were wise And discerning was because we are objects of his mercy. And so he says, you will stand fast through faith, so do not become proud. But, strong contrast, fear. Well, there it is. There's the application. Verse 18, do not be arrogant. Verse 20, do not become proud. We as Gentiles have to be careful not to look down on those who have not believed, no matter what ethnic or national origin they are. For, verse 21, if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. That's a great warning, isn't it? He says, listen, if I'm willing to break off unbelieving Jewish branches, believe me, it won't take any effort whatsoever to break off unbelieving Gentile branches. You're not super special. There's nothing unique about you. Apart from my grace being extended to you, there is nothing in you that is deserving. You are being grafted in, but the very thing that determines whether you are in or out as a branch is not your ethnicity, but your faith. Do you believe? You see, there are only two types of people in the world. There are those who believe and those who don't. And those who believe can't pat themselves on the back and say it was because of their wisdom. It is all because of grace, and therefore... You don't become proud because of your belief, but you fear. You fear. You acknowledge God's holiness. You acknowledge his grace and his mercy. You fall on your face in absolute thanksgiving over the fact that he would choose you because you know you would never have chosen him. Verse 21, 4. If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. Again, this beautiful truth of the kindness of God as he calls to those who would put their faith in him. The cutting off here is not a cutting off of losing one's salvation, the cutting off is the cutting off of those who claim to be his but never bear fruit that claim to be part of his people but never show love it's the ones who depart because they were never of us john says that of people in the church they just disappear they're gone why because they were never of us to begin with not only never of us not just not part of our local body here but they likely were never part of the body of christ anywhere There are those who for a time appear to believe, but then persecution comes and they fall away, or trials and they fall away, or they just don't prove to be fruitful. It's the parable of the soils. This over and over again is the teaching in the Bible that it is not just a matter of making some intellectual understanding, some intellectual assent, some profession just with your mouth, but it has to be a genuine heart belief or it's not real. They're the ones who are cut off. And if they, verse 23, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. To not continue in unbelief is to believe, is to repent, is to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is, as Isaiah says, the time where they look on the one whom they have pierced and they grieve over what they have done. I believe that many from the nation of Israel will turn in the end to put their faith in Christ and many from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, the original branches, the Jewish branches, the covenant branches, the, the ones who had all of this to begin with, how much more will they be grafted back into their own olive tree when they believe? Remember, these were all the advantages that the people of Israel had And though God has temporarily set them aside in order that the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles might come in, he has said in the end that the Jews whom he has foreknown will also repent and believe. They have not been cast off forever. He has not tripped them in order that they might fall and be trampled on the wayside. He has merely provoked them to a time of jealousy until all the Gentiles are in. And as we know, when all the believing Gentiles are in, that means that all Israel will be in. Because all Israel is not talking about ethnic Israel. All Israel is the spiritual Israel, the Israel of God, the people of God. And Paul says it very clearly in his text that it is when all of those Gentiles are in that all Israel will be saved. Now there's one single application. The one thing you need to do Is actually something you must not do. There's only one application. It's not a to do, it's a to don't. And it's very simply this most important takeaway don't be arrogant and don't be proud. Don't make a huge deal out of yourself. Don't make it seem as if you believe the gospel because you're wiser than anybody else. It is all about grace and faith, and those are gifts. Grace is a gift. It's a gift that makes you humble. When you receive a gift, it it humbles you. When you receive a gift, it makes you thankful. So the takeaway or the application here is simple. Be humble and be thankful. It's really the other side of the coin. You, You can't be arrogant and thankful at the same time. You can't be arrogant and thankful at the same time. Be a grateful Gentile. Don't fall into the default mode of thinking that you are entitled to what the Lord has so kindly given you. In the morning, I've been very much enjoying reading Table Talk, it's a devotional. one I would highly encourage you to pick up if you don't have one of these. And in it, day by day, just go through a passage of scripture and there's always an encouraging word from the authors here. And there was a particular article that was in that caught my eye yesterday morning. I just wanna read a brief section of it to you. It's written by Carrie Hahn And the title of the article is Entitlement, When Grace Isn't Grace. She writes this, quote, In the Reformed world, we hopefully embrace wholeheartedly the belief that we are by nature children of wrath, dead in our trespasses, unable to save ourselves, and completely dependent on the righteous life and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ to be reconciled to God and made his children. We extol the grace of God in salvation and would never say that we are owed the right to become children of God or that we are entitled to his saving grace. Therefore, the problem with our sinful entitlement mentality usually lies not in our understanding of special grace, but in our understanding of common grace the argument that she makes in here is that it's very easy for us to think that even the common graces of life, marriage, family, food, fellowship, life, are things we're entitled to. But even these are gracious gifts from God. So let us walk away from this study reminded not only of the infinite riches of the special grace of God in salvation, but also the myriad of common graces he gives us every single day. And may that be what spurs us on to be thankful, not just for our ultimate eternal salvation, but also the lavish temporal blessings that we enjoy. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, as we turn our attention now to the Lord's table, commemorate and remember the sacrifice that was made on our behalf, that the full payment could be made for all of our sin. Help us not to develop an entitlement attitude, but rather one of absolute gratitude. Gratitude eradicate the arrogance and the pride that so easily creeps into our hearts and make us those who are thankful willing to express that in the way that we sing in the way that we serve in the way that we love one another and may today be a model of that we pray these things in Jesus name Amen